Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you a show we're calling The Next Hit. All of us here know that this is a very complicated problem. The sound is from a rally held on the National Mall back in September. People came from around the country to protest the Food and Drug Administration's approval of certain powerful prescription painkillers or opioids. Many people who get addicted to these painkillers end up seeking a similar high through heroin. We've got millions of people, millions of Americans who now have the disease of opioid addiction. And if we don't rapidly expand access to treatment, heroin will continue to flood into communities and families will continue to be devastated by this crisis. The National Institute on Drug Abuse says in 2012, 2.1 million people in the United States were addicted to prescription opioids, and another 467,000 were addicted to heroin. So clearly, heroin and prescription drug abuse is a national problem, but it's also very much a local story, with a history distinctive to our region. That's because heroin actually first became a big problem in D.C. back in the 60s. And as we'll hear later, some of the earliest experiments in treating heroin addiction were launched here in the nation's capital. But fast forward to today, and heroin use is once again increasing in the Washington region. Northern Virginia saw fatal heroin overdoses rise more than 160 percent between 2011 and 2013. Maryland's heroin-related deaths went up nearly 90 percent in that same time period. And here in Washington, fatal overdoses have been steadily on the rise from five in 2009 to 41 in 2012, the most recent year for which statistics are available. Now, these numbers bring the problem of heroin abuse into pretty stark focus. But another way to understand this issue, to get a grasp on the tremendous hold heroin can have, is to hear the stories of the people who have found themselves deep in its clutches I think somewhere along the way, I was like, oh, I could just take a little and I'll be fine. And I'm not, I couldn't. I can't ever take a little and be fine. Raj Agarwal is a D.C. native living in northwest Washington, which is where he recently told me his own tale of heroin addiction. And the timing was perfect, he says, because my visit coincided with his birthday. Which birthday is it? 39th. Happy birthday. Thank you. Raj has been clean, going on 11 years now, but he says he's never before shared his full story. And so that's actually another reason why I feel like I want to do this today is because I accept myself wholly for who I am and every single thing that I've done in my life. You know, I have nothing to hide. But back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Raj had a whole lot to hide. He had a serious girlfriend at the time. She's the love of my life. She's just been so good to me. Yet parents living in town. I'm a first-generation Indian-American. And so, yeah, both my parents came here from India in the 70s. And he'd founded his own startup business. A company that helps socially responsible businesses and progressive nonprofit organizations with their marketing and communications. Has sort of social consciousness always been a big part of your life? Consciously and unconsciously. I always knew that I wanted to do good in the world. But every day, multiple times a day, Raj was getting high, snorting heroin. I was basically a functioning addict. As soon as the coast was clear, I, I would go out and get high, especially in the, when the addiction was really bad. And I just had to. So when it came to his girlfriend? We felt so strongly for each other, but I, I started lying and deceiving. As did he with his parents. I remember sometimes using at home in my house and my dad knocking on the door and me either pretending to be asleep or leave me alone. But I was just in there, like in this small little room, just getting high. 
As far as his job went... I would be getting high and definitely, you know, working on whatever it is that I was working on. I was doing graphic design at the time, so then I would... Often I would feel that I would have to get into a certain state in order for me to do my best work. Raj got hooked on heroin like so many other people do, through a gateway drug. You know, I started smoking weed back in high school, and um, I did it primarily because I had some friends around me, and, and that's what we did. And over time, I think I just I continued to use because it would make me feel different. It would help me to enjoy more of my human experience. And it was a completely different way of perceiving the world than the way I had been brought up and was told for a long time that you shouldn't do these things, they're bad for you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we would often be using different types of drugs. A lot of marijuana smoke, and sometimes people would have something different. So I've tried pretty much everything under the sun as far as it comes to narcotics. So we're talking cocaine? LSD. Mushrooms. Ecstasy, or what they call MDMA. The Raj didn't try heroin until about 10 years into his marijuana habit. He and his buddies had been hanging out doing pot when one of them turned to Raj and said, You should just try this thing. That thing was heroin. And I'm like, okay, so I just tried a little bit of it. And um, it took a little while for it to take hold, but it definitely was a very enjoyable experience. you say an enjoyable experience? Can you describe the sensation? It didn't happen maybe the first time, but it happened uh, a number of times after that. I just was able to attain this state of what I thought was normal. I never really felt normal. People would tell me, like, maybe this is how somebody's supposed to be or this is how they're supposed to act. And in fact, I used to not only do heroin, I used to do other drugs with it, including cocaine and some other things. I would find a perfect concoction to give me the exact feeling that I wanted for an extended period of time. So when you weren't using, were you anxious? Were you stressed? What was sort of off that seemed to be balanced out by the drug? I would be anxious sometimes. I would be stressed. Um, More importantly, I might not just have been happy. It wasn't long before people in Raj's life started to worry. People would say that sometimes I showed up and I'd be talking and my eyes would be like rolling to the back of my head. His mother was in denial. And my dad knew, but he didn't know what to do about it. So my dad would always say to my mom, you know, I think that he's using drugs or something like that. And my mom said there's no way that he would be doing that. Some friends knew of his drug use, but they were getting more and more freaked out by his increasingly complex concoctions. I remember one time a friend came over and he saw, like, on the table I had, like, eight or ten different things, and he knew at that point, like, I was not moving in the right direction. Then there was Raj's girlfriend, that love of his life. She eventually learned he was using and convinced him to enroll in an outpatient rehab program. So for a little while, Raj was actually clean. And then this guy showed up at my house who was an old friend, And he's like, you can just do this right now and nobody's going to know. And so we went into his car and I got high and nobody knew except for me. So I would like be clean for a little while and then I would use and then I would be clean for a little while and then I would use. And we go to this fish show and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, everything's fine. But my eyes are rolling to the back of my head and I'm obviously really, really high and um, we eventually come back from this concert and she's like we really need to talk and she comes over because we had been trying for months to maintain this and I try not to get high and whatever and she's like look we can't do this anymore like I'm done Um, you know we're 
breaking up and you can't call me. <laughs> and um, at that point, I realized um, that she was never coming back and that um, how bad my situation had become. And that um, every single one of my friends had lost respect for me and I had lost respect for myself. And that, that was my bottom. Raj knew it was time to come back up. He went cold turkey and spent a year attending 12-step programs every day, sometimes twice a day. And I uh, ended it by promising myself that I would go on this Hindu pilgrimage in India, this thing called Vashnamata, and it's a 13-kilometer hike up a mountain. And I promised that if I made it that far that I would go on this trip. And so I, I went on the trip. And that trip, he says, filled him with what he calls... Seeds of positivity and understanding and compassion for myself and for others. But it wasn't long before he once again felt that familiar pull. I started to use again like a month or two months later. And it lasted for about two weeks. And I realized what I was doing again. And I stopped. And I haven't used since then. That was the real stop. So that, that was over 11 years ago. And now it's your birthday. And now it's my birthday. And now that the birthday boy has finally shared his story, told his tale. I feel, I feel uh, relieved. Really? Yep. I've just completely transformed myself from who I was into who I am today. And I hope that if somebody hears this and they're in a similar state that I am, that they know that there's a possibility that they can change I keep on wanting to say if they choose to, but it's really hard to make that choice. But there is a possibility, and I know that I'm living proof of that possibility. And even just doing this right now makes me feel like, what more good can I go do in the world? Like, what else can I do? Because there's a lot to do. We'll head across the district border now to Maryland. It's hard to know exactly how many people are using heroin in the old line state, but one way to get a sense is to look at the number of people admitted to state-sponsored treatment programs. And that number is on the rise, especially in rural communities. In 2008, about 11 percent of people admitted to these programs came from rural areas. Last year, it was more than 24 percent. But as Emily Berman tells us, treatment options can be few and far between in these communities. Who has a one? Who has a two? At the Anchor Treatment Center, there are group therapy sessions going on all day. So as we walk the halls, Christy Burns keeps her voice down. Okay, so now we're in uh, where people sleep and where part of the treatment happens. Anchor is run by Walden Sierra, an organization with several substance abuse treatment centers nearby. Patients come here from all over Southern Maryland and Prince George's County as well. We run a pretty tight ship and a tight schedule. Uh, They have between six and seven groups a day, three meals, three snacks, a movie, and bedtime. 
There are 52 beds in the facility, but there's only enough grant funding for 24 patients. There's typically a wait list of 50 to 70 people trying to get one of those spots. Some of the unfunded beds are used in a halfway house program, and the rest sit empty. For those who do make it into treatment, the majority are addicted to opiates, like heroin. Betsy Lenhart-Cooksey is the program's clinical director. You know, people who say I would, they never thought they would do this, they're pretty much astounded that they're injecting. Many of her patients are young, she says, just 18 or 19 years old. And their addiction has a huge impact on their families, especially the parents. You know, when our kids are little and they're sick, we take them to the pediatrician and they give us medication and we follow the rules and we make sure they're doing what they need to do. When our adult children are sick, they're not babies. We can't spoon feed them the medicine. We have to support them differently. (laughs) About 20 minutes north of Anchor, a group of 30 or so parents are sitting in a circle at the Charles County Sheriff's Department. The group is called PABA, Parents Affected by Addiction. This month, like most months, the room is packed. Tonight, there's a guest speaker. Her name is Taylor Marie Hazel. She's 22 years old and wears gray jeans and moccasins. Her hair goes all the way down to her elbows. So we had a whole bunch of money, and we were heroin addicts, so what else are you going to do but spend it on heroin? It's been two months since Taylor was released from prison. She was there for first-degree burglary. She's only been back in Charles County a few times since getting out, and she doesn't plan to make a habit of it. You know, Charles County, um, it's so bad. It's kind of like coming into enemy territory. This is where she began using drugs, she explains. At 12, she drank and smoked pot. At 14, she was doing cocaine, ecstasy, and acid. By the time I was 16, I had just started pain pills. 17, full-blown addict. The parents in the room have questions. A lot of their kids are in prison on drug-related charges. Did you keep any of your old friends, even one? Um, I absolutely have no contact with uh, anybody that I used to have a past with that used to do drugs. One mother tells Taylor that the court ordered her son to go to a local Narcotics Anonymous meeting, but every time he went, he'd relapse. For him, he's going to get higher. He needs to be completely removed. And so when they court order it, it's just like, just just throw them to the wolves, you know, let him hibernate at home, you know? Taylor agrees. Out here, it can be impossible to get away from the old crowd. It's not really a help for you. See, I wish the judges would hear you say that. And the familiar faces aren't the only problem. In general, there aren't enough resources to go around. In Southern Maryland, there's high demand for homeless shelter beds. Being kicked out of the house often means living in the woods. Because when I throw my son out, you know, that night I was like ready to just drive him to a shelter. I'm like, you're not living here. That's it. You're out. There's no shelters. He literally was in the woods for weeks was because I had, to, I had to do what I had to do for me and the rest of the Her family. Some parents just want to trust their kids again, but they don't know where to begin. Even when I had gallbladder surgery three years ago, and I told all the nurses I could tell him he's a drug addict, do not give him my Percocet prescription. I missed one. Okay. The disease is incredible. Another mother turns to Taylor and, grappling for the words, asks if she'll ever be able to love her son again. How do you get that trust? um, trust Is there something that me as a mother could really just sit down and say? Taylor's response is simple. Tell him how you feel. Tell him what he's done. The mother nods appreciatively and the group moves on. But it's clear that this is not the sort of problem that can be solved 
with simple answers. I'm Emily Berman. a break, but when we get back... People can't imagine that people would come from all over the world to learn from a program that was in the D.C. government, especially a drug program. But that was what was going on at that time. Revisiting D.C.'s heroin epidemic of the late 60s and early 70s. Plus, we'll meet a man whose heroin habits started at age 12, when his aunt injected him with the drug. 12 years old, come on, man. 12 years old, she did that to me. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling this week's show The Next Hit as we explore what's happening with a certain drug here in the D.C. region, heroin. And in this next part of the program, we'll look at the problem from the perspective of public health workers and law enforcement. But first, a bit of history, because this isn't the first time heroin has plagued the nation's capital. And the man we'll meet next can testify to that fact. Dr. Robert DuPont was the first administrator of D.C.'s Narcotics Treatment Administration, or NTA, a drug abuse treatment program formed in response to the tens of thousands of Washingtonians hooked on heroin in the late 1960s and early 1970s. From there, he became the first director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the second White House drug czar. These days, Dr. DuPont has a private psychiatry practice in North Bethesda, which is where I talked with him about the local heroin situation, both now and back in the late 60s, when crime was peaking in the district. And as a new employee of the D.C. Department of Corrections, a young Dr. DuPont was conducting a certain experiment. I did a study in the D.C. jail where I took urine samples from everybody who came in in the month of August of 1969. And we found that 44% of them were positive for heroin. And then we looked at the question of what year did you start using heroin? And I plotted that against the crime rate in Washington, and they were right in parallel. That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It defined the connection between drugs and crime for the whole country, that study of mine that was done here in Washington, D.C. And so the question was, okay, Dr. DuPont, you found this problem. What do you do about it? So I made it my business to go around the country and find the leading people who are in drug treatment and see what I could learn. And I put that together and started a drug treatment program in the Department of Corrections in September of 1969. This received a good bit of attention, and February 18, 1970, Walter Washington, the mayor, appointed me 
head of a new agency to treat heroin addicts in Washington. And we started the Narcotics Treatment Administration. This was methadone treatment? Well, we called it multimodality. We had people who were not on any medicines at all, but the majority of the patients, 90% of the patients, were taking methadone. In the next three years, we treated 15,000 heroin addicts in the city. The heroin overdose rate went from 70 people in a year to four in a year. When you did your study in the prison in 1969, you found what looked like a connection between heroin use and crime. So as you're treating all these people through the NTA in Washington, D.C., did you then see crime go down as well? Oh, absolutely. That demonstrated that uh, treating people on a large scale could have an effect on a whole community. The people who were using heroin in Washington, D.C. at the time, did it cross demographics? Who were the people who were hooked and then came to you for treatment? Well, this was a public program, so uh, it was people who were often uh, not well-to-do. And because of the uh, issue of relation to crime, a lot of them came from the criminal justice system. So they were young, mostly black, mostly involved in criminal behavior, so they had a lot of uh, uh, criminal things. But it's important to realize that even then, There were middle-class people, there were, uh, everybody wasn't black by any means, but that was the dominant type. We had sections of the city where 25% of the young men were heroin addicts. So you moved to the federal government, you became the second drug czar. How would you compare what was happening then with what is happening now? The situation now could hardly be more different. We're no longer talking about a sudden new epidemic. We're talking about something that has been going on for a a long time and uh, constantly changing. And the big new development is that starting in the 1990s, American medicine discovered or decided that pain was being inadequately treated in the country. And so what doctors were trained was, if you give opiate medicines to somebody who's not a drug addict for pain, the person will use it as a medicine, not be addicted, they'll be just fine. It was not entirely wrong. There was something to that. But when I was in medical school in the early years, the only people who got prescriptions for opiates were terminally ill patients, mostly in the hospital. So all of a sudden, you get this dramatic change of belief, of, of intention. And, of course, it was reinforced by the pharmaceutical companies. Those became very lucrative medicines. There were a lot of people going around teaching doctors how to do this better. And uh, that came to haunt us, to have a destructive effect that is seen most visibly in the overdose deaths rates, which the Center for Disease Control came to label this an epidemic, to use the same word. Uh, But they were talking about prescription drugs. And so the demography couldn't be more different. Rural, suburban, all uh, incomes in the the picture. Lots of women in the situation. And that really changed the image of it. Now, there's one other thing that happened that was really powerful in this. And that is that the drug traffickers have become much more effective. Uh, Talk about globalization, uh, bringing things to people cheaper, and, uh, well, it does that with drugs in spades. So what we've got today is this prescription drug sort of avenue in for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be likely to do this. 
Plus, we've got an incredibly effective system of bringing heroin to the consumer in the United States at a very low price and at a very high purity. We didn't have that before. And that makes it for a very, very difficult problem. That was Dr. Robert Dupont, former White House drug czar and head of D.C.'s Narcotics Treatment Administration. Since 1978, he's served as the founding president of the Institute for Behavior and Health. So here's the thing. If you're going to have a frank discussion about heroin use, plenty of folks in public health will tell you, you know what, some people just aren't going to want or be able to quit. And here in D.C., that's led to the creation of needle exchanges. Now, some critics suggest needle exchanges promote drug use. But groups like HIPS, which provides more than 200,000 needles a year to IV drug users, say it's a form of harm reduction. They say needle exchanges help stem the spread of diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. Lauren Ober recently tagged along with secondary syringe exchangers, former drug users tasked with handing out supplies, and brings us this story. It's 10 o'clock on a frigid November morning, and Maurice Abbey Bay is filling up paper bags of supplies. We have condoms, uh, syringes, ties, tourniquet, needles, bandages, cotton, bleach, cookers. The cookers are when people are cooking up their heroin or they can put their cocaine in it. And why do you guys give those out, too? Like, a lot of people would just use a spoon, right? Uh, We give this out because we don't want people using the same dirty spoon. You use that spoon over and over and over, you can catch hepatitis and all types of other diseases. Maurice is a secondary syringe exchanger with HIPS, a local nonprofit that provides clean needles and other supplies to injection drug users in D.C., He's getting ready to go out and deliver the packages. HIPS employee Charlotte Sawyer has been working the phones to find out what clients need. Um, I think this is Denise that used to hang out with Frank, but I'm not totally sure, so you want to confirm. If you meet her, you want to confirm her syringe exchange number. Oh, that's the girl that hang with her. I know where they at. Her and Denise together. Mm -hmm. Denise is a regular HIPS client. About once a week, she gets a resupply. But in order to get more needles, she has to give back the ones she's already used. It's an equal exchange, 50 old needles for 50 new ones. Today, Denise is hanging with Loretta, another HIPS client. Maurice gets their orders ready. So on the first order, she wants 50 blueheads. Maurice opens a case filled with all types of new needles. They got blueheads, apples, groans, these all needles. Like people have different preferences of where they want to shoot in their body, or explain the differences right. to me. Right, the differences, like uh, the groin, right? They're, they're growing here with it. He points to his groin where some users like to shoot into their femoral vein. Apples, you know, they're going in the neck, the shoulders. Blue head, they're going everywhere with it. It's the left of the needles. Maurice tops off Loretta's bag with alcohol pads, antibiotic cream, hand wipes, and vitamins, which are a huge hit among the clients. 
He also includes small plastic vials of water used to help cook the heroin. You have people using rainwater, creek water, you know, that's other bacteria that they affect in themselves with. I've seen it. I've seen people spit and try to use the saliva for water. You see what I'm saying? That thing becomes real desperate when they when they have drug habit. Maurice knows a little something about this. He had a heroin habit from the time he was 12 until he got clean around age 45. He's 57 now. Once the bags are packed, it's time to make deliveries. Maurice and his wife, Charmaine Sauls, climb into their truck and head to the first stop. All right, Loretta's first. She about 50 blue heads, 20 diabetics. Oh, we got stuff. Oh, you got hers in the bag already? Yes. All right, and then Denise is with her. The mic is on Sheriff Road. All right, we're right there. We're ready. The couple has been together for 16 years, and they get each other. Both had heroin habits that landed them in jail, and both recovered. Now they give back by serving as secondary exchangers. They say it's their therapy. There are only two needle exchange programs in the district, and their operation is tenuous. Since the city's budget has to be approved by Congress, and because no federal dollars are allowed to go to needle exchange, the HIPS program is always at risk. We pull up at a brick row house in the Lincoln Heights neighborhood. Loretta greets us at the door. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Her house is full of stray cats, but it's tidy. She walks Maurice into her cramped dining room. There's a Ziploc bag full of spent needles on the table. Loretta dumps the used works, as they're called, into a red biohazard bin. Then Maurice gives her fresh supplies. Today I asked for exchange of the the needles, and uh, they also included alcohol pads and uh, the cookers. And, and, yeah, so basically that's that's what I ordered. So this will last you how long, this bag? Maybe, maybe... Ooh, a week or two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Because yeah. you got like what fifty? Uh huh. Uh huh. So they can. I can always call when I'm getting short of something, and uh, you know they they make sure I have something. You know. After Loretta's, we hit a few more individual stops. Then we head over to Minnesota Avenue and Clay Place Northeast and park outside a seafood joint. Here, users come to exchange their works from the back of Maurice's truck. One of those users is a man named Ty, who's hunched over a walker and shivering from the cold. For him, the needle exchange is a matter of public health. You know, people can hurt themselves using other people's needles. They can hurt themselves by, you know, using old needles. You feel what I'm saying? And, you know, it's not about, you know, using old needles if you got somebody like these people to help you. And that's what it's about. That's important to me. After they see about a dozen clients there on the corner, Maurice and Charmaine head back to the HIPS office to get rid of the old works and restock the truck so they can head back out. As long as people use, the work, it seems, is never done. I'm Lauren Ober. So far this hour, we've heard about heroin use in the district and in Maryland, and our next story takes us to Virginia. Last year, a 16-year-old girl died in Virginia after ingesting heroin, and this month, the D.C. dealer who sold it to her was sentenced to 25 years in prison. 
Holding drug dealers accountable is one part of Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring's heroin and prescription drug abuse strategy launched in September. Lauren Landau reached Herring in Richmond, and as he says, the issue is affecting all regions of the Commonwealth. Could you describe in your own words the scope of the heroin problem in Virginia, specifically in northern Virginia? About this time last year, I started seeing some stories come up about the heroin problem, that it was on the rise, and that the heroin that was out on the streets was very potent. And one other thing that really struck me was that it seemed like it was crossing a lot of different divides, geographic divides, economic divides, and cultural divides. And it wasn't just an urban problem. It was in rural and suburban areas, and and that it was growing and getting worse. According to the chief medical examiner in Virginia, more than 800 Virginians died from drug overdoses in 2012, uh, with heroin overdose deaths nearly doubling from 103 in 2011 to 197 in 2013. Every region of the state experienced an increase, including in in northern Virginia, where there was a 164% increase in heroin fatalities. Well, those are some startling numbers. Now, I understand in these overdose emergencies, there is a drug that can save lives. What are the legal issues that police departments and first responders have to consider when they're looking at using this? Right now, there is a pilot project in Virginia where a few jurisdictions are allowed to have the naloxone administered by the first responders. And not only in these areas, but I think also in some other states where it's been employed, it has been successful at stopping overdoses where the effects of an overdose are immediately turned around. And we're looking at introducing some legislation or or talking to some legislators about introducing legislation that would expand that program I know that you rolled out this heroin and prescription drug abuse strategy back in September. What are some of those efforts that you're hoping to make? What laws might you want to introduce in an effort to fight this problem? For that matter, what laws do you have that you can work with now? Well, it's going to take a lot of different strategies and a lot of different agencies and people in communities working together to get it turned around. We have already stepped up prosecutions and enforcement against the dealers and the traffickers who would put this poison out on the streets. And we're working with the U.S. Attorney's Office and and prosecutors around the state to do that. But the prosecution is only one piece. And in order to really turn this problem around, it's got to be coupled with a very strong and robust education and and public outreach effort. Education and, and prevention are going to be huge parts to this so that young people and and young adults know the dangers of this. There was a case just last week that really highlighted how some younger people can be vulnerable. And and I understand that part of your effort is going to be to prioritize heroin fatality cases. Is that part of what was going on here with this Antoine Thorne conviction? It is. and, And that's an example of how we are stepping up our prosecution efforts against the traffickers and the dealers who would put these dangerous drugs out on the street and in the hands of of people and and users and in this particular case the dealer was sentenced to 25 years in prison after there was evidence that linked the drugs that he sold to the death of this young woman and these are the kinds of efforts that we've got to get implemented around the state Education and prevention is a big piece of it, as well as tougher prosecutions against those who would sell the drugs and put them out on the street. And 
One of the legislative proposals that we're going to make is that we have a tougher drug-induced homicide law so that these dealers know if they start selling these drugs and it results in a fatality, we will hold them accountable. And I understand that there's also an effort to introduce some Good Samaritan laws. How can that help? A lot of evidence shows that those who are right around someone who is having an overdose oftentimes don't call 911 or for medical help out of fear that they may be arrested for possession. So it's a limited kind of immunity that would help encourage someone who is in the presence of another who's having a drug overdose to contact 911 or or call for emergency help to help save a life. And we think that's one of a number of strategies that, that will help. What's your goal? Where do you hope to be a year from now or maybe two? What we want to do is turn the tide against prescription abuse and heroin. And we don't want one more parent to have to bury a child or one more child to lose their mom or dad because of opiate abuse. That was Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. In a minute, Baltimore, the heroin capital of America? What we should do is look at this as an opportunity to lead the nation to fight this disease of addiction. And we'll hear from a woman who finally kicked a lifelong heroin addiction in her late 50s. It relieved me of the pain that I carried for so long and for so many years. That and more coming up as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This week, we're looking at heroin use in the region with a show we're calling The Next Hit. In just a bit, we'll find out how people in Baltimore are responding to their city being designated the nation's heroin capital. First, though, a look at what might trigger drug use in the first place. Does it have something to do with how our brains are wired? Or is it more about the experiences we have at a young age? Well, for years, researchers have been finding a strong relationship between drug abuse and child abuse earlier in life. A 2004 study published in the American Journal of Drugs and Alcohol Abuse said in no uncertain terms, preventing child abuse may well be the most powerful means of preventing substance abuse. And the relationship between physical abuse and drugs may also work the other way around. Another study showed that women who abuse drugs are three times more likely to experience partner violence in their lifetimes than other women. Tatiana Safranova introduces us to one woman who battled heroin addiction for more than 40 years. For her, quitting the drug also meant ending a cycle of sexual violence. And a word of warning that this story contains some graphic descriptions of abuse. As a child, Teresa Dorsey lived in a house with a monster, her father. I never really got to know the man, other than as a sex partner. That was it. She remembers how alcohol set him off and how he terrorized her and her seven siblings. He would beat her older brother, John, and when he was done, he turned to Teresa and raped her. No one stepped in to help. So Teresa came up with an escape plan for herself and John. I was stole two bicycles because him and I was going to run away from home. And I did because I didn't want to see him abuse him anymore. I think we was about nine, ten years old. And I said, come on, let's go. And he said, where you get these bikes from? I said, don't worry about it. 
and we riding and we riding and we was going across the East Put Bridge. And as we was crossing the bridge, the police would say, there they go. And the police came and took us and took the little bikes <laughs> put us, and locked us up. And you know the beat down we got when, we, when I got home. You know, my mother took her fist and beat me so bad. All I wanted to do was run away with my brother because I got tired of my dad, seeing my dad treat him like that, you know. Teresa slept in school, exhausted from staying awake at nights, dreading her father's abuse. Then she dropped out altogether. She was drinking by the time she was 13. By 17, she was pregnant, married, and happy to be out of the house. The marriage lasted fewer than five years. She says it was marked by violence, fueled by her husband's drug and alcohol use. All the men that I attracted to me were abusive. I think because of my low self-worth, and I just felt like, let me put it to you this way, I got sex confused with love. That's what I did. That's what I did. The drinking led to pot, PCP, acid. Then in her early 20s, Teresa tried heroin at a party. It was like, wow, the perfect painkiller. And from there there on out, I, I just constantly use. Because when you stop, that pain comes back. The pain just grew. By 25, Teresa had two children, a girl and a boy. She gave the former her own name and called the boy Theodore. Addicted to heroin, she left the children with family and spent days getting high. When she had no money, she traded sex for drugs. Okay, now you're neglecting your children, you walked off, you left your kids, you know, you've been to jail, you know, when I hear you took something, you, you stole from your mother, you know, you stole from your brother, they looking for their money, you spent their rent money, now you're piling more guilt and more shame on top of what you're already carrying, and it just weighs you down. It just really weighs you down. Teresa tried many treatment programs over the years and found short periods of stability. At one point, she ran a catering business and earned her high school diploma. She even went to Howard University and became a certified addiction counselor. But she always went back to using. I just didn't know how to stay clean. In 2011, Teresa hit bottom. She was being evicted from her condo in Anacostia. She had nothing left but one small pink suitcase. It held her clothes, her certificates, and her degrees. What saved her, Teresa says was a treatment program on O Street Northwest called So Others Might Eat. She found a meal when she was hungry, and eventually people with whom she could get to the bottom of her addiction. She now has a pastor, a therapist, and a psychiatrist she can call. Because for once in this little girl's life, somebody hears her. Somebody hears this child that's been wanting to speak out for so long. For once, somebody actually hears this little girl. Three and a half years later, at age 62, Teresa is still clean, but she sees drug abuse running its course through the family. Her daughter, Teresa, went on to abuse heroin. You know, even as a mom, I wish I could get sober for her. You know, I could just take the sobriety I have and just somehow another, just take it and put it in her and she'll get clean. But that's not going to happen. At 45, the younger Teresa is in and out of jail. She has eight children and lives in Baltimore. I'm Tatiana Safranova.
We'll wrap up today's show in Baltimore, Maryland, the so-called heroin capital of America. At least that's what National Geographic called the city in its recent documentary series, Drugs, Inc., After an episode called The High Wire zeroed in on heroin use in Baltimore and claimed there were 60,000 heroin users in the city, it ignited a major conversation about the city's image. But as Hans Anderson found out, being the so-called heroin capital of America could perhaps spur positive change. Drugs, Inc., The High Wire starts like this. This program includes material that may not be suitable for all viewers. Discretion is advised. And then goes on to introduce some drug dealers wearing bandanas over their faces. They're cutting heroin on mattresses. They sound like this. This ain't no fur, it's all evil. It's all real life going down right here, man. Coming to you live from Baltimore. Later, there are undercover police officers buying drugs near a public market. Someone shoots up in a car. Baltimore. A tough town facing hard times. And a lot of Baltimoreans took issue with this depiction of their city, especially the title Heroin Capital of America. We shouldn't feel ashamed or sad or embarrassed, right? What we should do is look at this as an opportunity to lead the nation to fight this this disease of addiction, right? Instead of burying our heads in the sand and acting like it don't exist. This is Kevin Shirt. He grew up in Baltimore. Around 16 years old, I started dealing myself, dealing drugs. Never used drugs. That wasn't never my thing. But by age 23, I was making $20,000 a day in West Baltimore selling heroin on the streets. He started trafficking drugs into the city. Um, and of course, I ended up spending almost 12 years in, in federal prison and California prison, which I should have. That's you dealing drugs, there's a price to pay for that. Sherd left that federal prison in 2006, and today is the president of the Do Right Foundation, which he co-founded. He also wrote a memoir called Lessons of Redemption. He thinks that there should be a larger conversation about the term heroin capital of America. When you ask him about that dubious claim that there are 60,000 heroin users in Baltimore... We can argue all day about the numbers and how many addicts there are, and we'll never know for sure the the exact number, but we all uh, know that there's a problem. So my whole thing was, okay, so if we got X number of addicts in Baltimore, then we're the kids of these addicts. Shirt focuses on children of addicted parents and prevention education. He's been traveling around and sharing his own story. His father was an alcoholic, and he sees addiction being passed on from generation to generation. Well, here, growing up here in Baltimore, it hasn't changed. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been bad for 25 years. He tells kids it's not an easy get-rich-quick scheme. When you do prosper, it's going to be temporary. It ain't going to last forever, right? I sold, a lot of, I sold dope and made a lot of money. I couldn't put that money in, no, in, a, in any banks. I couldn't go buy stock with that money. I couldn't put that money in a retirement account. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, this is way bigger than that. And that's what I try to educate these kids on. It's much, much deeper than just the money. The city is doing something about heroin use, though. About a month and a half after that National Geographic documentary aired, a heroin task force was announced. Heroin was around before the crack cocaine epidemic, and it has continued to rise over the last, you know, 20 plus years. Christina Trenton is the vice president of program operations at Behavioral Health Systems Baltimore. It's a nonprofit that essentially works for the city. We see that showing up in our treatment admission numbers. 
um, and the numbers of individuals that present for care identifying opiate use, specifically heroin, as their primary substance of dependence. The Heroin Treatment and Prevention Task Force was created by behavioral health systems. We recognize that if we don't kind of come at this from uh, several different fronts in that we understand the problem and understand how to respond to the problem, um, that without doing that more thoughtful work, we are just kind of doomed to stay in this continued stasis, really. The task force is about a month old, but members hope to get recommendations to the city government by next July. Right now, they're focusing on surveying clinics, talking to community members, and figuring out the scope of heroin use in treatment in Baltimore. But until next July, there are people like Kevin Shirt. He's trying to start a larger conversation. Getting involved in the drug game at a really young age, seeing people dying on the streets, seeing people uh, overdosing on the streets, seeing people dying in jail. It just gave me a really different perspective on the heroin epidemic. And he hopes Baltimore will lead the way in the fight against heroin addiction. I'm Hans Anderson. You can find a link to that original National Geographic documentary on our website, metroconnection.org. We also have information on the various treatment programs mentioned during today's show. Again, it's all on metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Hans Anderson, Lauren Ober, and Lauren Landau, along with reporter Tatiana Safranova. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. This week's theme song is by Eric Shimalonis. You can find information about all the music we play on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you missed part of today's show, just head to metroconnection.org and click This Week on Metro Connection, or you can subscribe to our podcast there. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll celebrate Thanksgiving with some tasty morsels from our annual Down the Hatch show. From mambo sauce to vegan donuts to the lesser-known specialties of Maryland cuisine, we'll take a big bite out of our region's culinary culture. Oh my goodness, I'm start- I feel like I've reached the waddling stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. Mm-hmm.